Welcome to the Pitching Command Show, brought to you by Command Tracker, the smart target that MLB and D1 teams rely upon to measure and train command. Many throw hard, but few command. Visit commandtracker.com. Hey, joining today's podcast is my friend Chad Durbin, former MLB pitcher and World Series champion. Welcome, Chad. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Man, I had a good time talking the other day on the phone and uh, excited to do the show. I uh, really appreciate what you're doing. Um, you know, kind of going from uh, what we talked about with some analyst background and doing all that stuff to, hey, it comes down to the basics and commanding and throwing the ball over that white plate 60 feet, six yeah. inches away. Well, uh, when I was asking for a real pitcher to describe things, uh, uh, you were recommended by Lovey, and he, he, he thinks very highly of you. The smoke and mirrors must have worked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were drafted by the Royals in the third round in 1996, and you made it to the MLB in 1999. It's pretty quick. You played as a pro for 19 years, including 11 in the MLB for the Royals, the Indians, Tigers, Diamondbacks, and the Phillies as both a starter and a reliever. And your four seam sat at 90 to 91. So you were a real pitcher. And then yeah. you won the World Series as a member of the Phillies in 2008. Yeah, that was, um, you know, at that time, I'd kind of, I mean, we'll talk about it, uh, you know, transition from a four seam curveball changeup guy to more of a sinker cutter changeup guy with a, with a curveball that I didn't realize so much later on was um, amongst the top probably two or 3% in the league as far as spin rates and, and all that stuff that was not in vogue in 2013 when I stepped away. So um, I'm learning now. I wish I'd have learned a little bit earlier then, but you know, one of our traits as uh, big league pitchers is being stubborn. And um, you know, the only guy that brought it up was a GM at the time or assistant GM at the time. He was former GM of, uh, of the Kansas city Royals that, when I drafted, when I was drafted, he was the, the GM there. He, uh, he said, Chad, you need to throw your curveball more. It's like, well, well, why? It's my fourth pitch. And he's like, mm, it's, it, it meets some standards. I can't give you details because he was with the Red Sox and I wasn't. He said, I think you should come here and we'll probably uh, utilize that pitch more. So you've, you know all that stuff uh, pretty well, but that's uh, towards the end of my career. That was kind of where we were. And um, I found that you, you mentioned the kind of, running rate at, that my fastball sat at and anytime that I and we would know this from some of the vertical movement and horizontal movement and release heights and release extension um, perceived velocity all the all the fancy terms but I had more life on the ball at 89 to 92 than I did at 93 94 95 every time I feel like I threw a fastball 94 to 95 it went in a gap and I learned to back up bases really well so you know, learned response, Pavlov's dog. I, um, the conditioned response was stop trying to throw hard. And how about you locate? Yeah, I, I definitely locating and movement is it definitely, I, uh, I have a joke series I call, uh, the velomaniac jokes. And one of them is if your fastball is straight as a snagged fishing line, you might be a velomaniac, you know, so straight <laughs> it's not good. Yeah, you just kill you know, the, the, the bet. I, I felt like, and we used to say this all the time, actually in the Philly pen, you mentioned uh, 2008, um, nine and 10, I was there in 13 again, but the 2008 bullpen was, it, it, it was more of baseball IQ was through the roof. Everybody was very verbal about how they felt, what they were thinking, like how, how they were managing their emotions. 
uh, way advanced compared to what was going on around that time in 2008. It was just more like, you know, hey, how do you feel? Do you feel nervous before you pitch? And we're like, well, yeah, like hot sweats and, you know, butterflies and, you know, the fight or flight mechanism. I don't want to run out there and fail in front of 45,000 people and everybody watching on TV. I'd really prefer not to, um, whether I'm in Kansas City or whether I'm in Philly, where they really let you know, no matter how good you're going, a 2-0 count is boo-worthy in, uh, in Philadelphia. So you just kind of learn – uh, how to communicate, um, what what works for you. And we, we used to say, Brian Matz and myself, Lidge, it was like, spin it hard. Don't try to throw it hard. You know, but spin it hard and try to locate. Like, I'd rather have a mediocre breaking ball located to the perfect part of the plate than an elite breaking ball sitting in the middle. And, you know, so we kind of, yeah, I mean, it speaks highly on the on the command side. Obviously, that's what we were talking about there. But it's the real estate, you know, moniker, location, location, location. You know, if you locate it and you understand what the hitter's trying to do, you re- it's, it's, it's a matter of execution versus execution. And, and, you know, hitters would say it, man, if I'm not looking where you're throwing it and I've got to put the ball in play, I'm obviously in a passive, you know, mindset. I'm obviously in a passive reactive state. So that's, it's really not hard for them to do damage. They might get lucky, um, well, just like we get lucky. Yeah, well, like if a batter, you know, tries to be ready for every pitch that you have, he's not going to any of them. So he has to kind of pick his plan, his lane, his pitch, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, uh, when you could tell that a guy was – or, or I mean, you, you, it starts with being familiar with the hitter, whether it's video, whether it's reading the advanced scouting reports, reading the general scouting reports, just being familiar with the hitter and understanding – what he's trying to do if it's the first pitch of a, a of a an at bat and it's a second or third at bat he's he's swings 60 percent of the time in those situations with runners on whatever basis you compute that and you're like okay if he's swinging first pitch then i'm going to make sure that i locate this in a part of of the zone that he doesn't have a high success rate in i'm not trying to throw a ball because he's trying to swing I'm, i want him to hit the baseball yeah, this is great stuff. This is why I wanted to be on the show because I was talking to uh, our friend uh, Scott Lovecamp about reading batters and sequencing. And yeah. I asked him, who should I have on the show to talk in the details of that? And he popped your name up. And that's uh, Mike Leitzinger connected us. Uh, he's yeah. another good friend. In the previous 27 episodes, we touched lightly on reading batters and how to use that to know what pitches to sequence and, and use. Uh, so your episode... I was really looking forward to to get into details about how to how to use command and how to locate and how to read batters. I wanted to ask you, uh, Bronson Arroyo was on this show and he spoke about how he had lunch with Scott Ludcamp just before he faced the Phillies in game two of the playoff series in 2010. Uh, they got no hit by Roy Halladay in the first game of the playoffs. And Scott told Bronson, I think you can get inside on Chase Utley with a changeup. When no pitcher would want to come in on the inner half of with Utley having that quick bat, and Bronson used that in the game and got him out two times. So Scott was right, and that reminds me of you know the legendary Mel Didier, yeah, and and what he told Kirk Gibson about Eckersley in Game One of '88 World yeah, Series. Every three-two count, he's throwing a backdoor breaking ball. Um, yeah. if you get in that count, you're going to see that pitch, that that stuff, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think instead of calling him Lovey, we should call him Padna. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think those are great examples of reading batters and executing a strategy. And I, I wanted to know what kind of examples you've seen before we get into the further about reading batters. Have you ever seen any kind of big moments like that? Well, sometimes they turned out to not be big moments because, you know, you, you listened to an advanced scout or a coach that had a, a, a gut feeling or, you know, you know, you're around enough people that if you can take in the information that you need and kind of spit it out, like I'll, I'll, I'll point out, and it's, you know, it's Pedro Martinez, one of the best to ever do it. Arguably during that stretch of time between maybe 97 and 02 to 03, best that ever did it and when he was younger he could get away with like whatever strategy he had he had the arsenal to back it up like oh i think i can beat this guy with a fastball well yeah because your fastball is elite even if you miss you're going to get away with it but as he got older he was with us in 2009 in philly faced that yankees lineup and at the time obviously hideki matsui wasn't the one that you were thinking he's going to beat you to win a world series. But in our scouting meetings, advanced scouting meetings, we kept bringing up like you, you, you know, or, or I guess rich doobie and the, and the advanced scouts and everybody that, you know, paperwork was coming across. Don't pitch him inside right now. And Pedro kept saying, I think I can beat him in there. And most of us, I mean, I remember arguing with him directly, like Pedro, you're not Pedro, you're Pedro 2.0. You're like the guy that throws 88 there. You're not throwing 98 anymore and you're in Yankee stadium. He's trying to pull the ball. He's leaking. He's trying to get to that pitch, make him hit the ball the other way. I mean, it was just an argument that, you know, I, I knew if I had to face him, I was going to make him beat me the other way. Well, Pedro, you know, stubborn as, as he was, which was great. I mean, what a great attribute. He kept pitching him in and Matsui kept hitting balls in the seats. And, you know, in, I think in games, what was it? Two and, and six were his starts. Um, if I'm right, if not three and six, um, there's two and six. He, he just could not beat Matsui in and he kept trying. And so mm -hmm. those moments where not reading the hitters advanced report, not reading his body language as is not reading the bat, not reading his takes, not being in tune. Um, and, and I think it happens sometimes when you're older, you're so convinced that you have the right path and, you know, right plan that the other 20 guys in the room that also have a pretty good read on things um, might not agree with you. And if, and if you're the only one going the other way, sometimes that's a good thing. I like the contrarian approach, but if you're in a room full of guys that are also experts, you know, I mean, you can stick to it, but you better be right. And in that case, you know, he wasn't right. And that, you know, turned out to be a pretty big difference maker. A-Rod didn't beat us. Jeter didn't beat us. Posada didn't beat us. It turned out to be that Matsui came up in all the big situations and got big hits and was the MVP of the World Series. And I look, I, I always go back to me. And if we would, if you just hit him or walked him or <laughs> didn't give him a pitch to hit on that side of the plate, he doesn't hit the homers. And, you know, whether or not changeups into Chase Utley for Bronson was the right thing or not, he was convinced it was right. And in that case, it worked, you know? And sometimes I think the conviction is just as powerful as whether it's right or wrong. Yeah, and Bronson liked to use that contrarian approach, like you said, where, you know, no one would throw a changeup to this guy over here, so I'm going to do it because he's not going to be ready for it. 
No doubt. So sometimes that'll work, right? Absolutely. Well, when and Bronson probably threw, I don't know, 50% breaking balls. So mm -hmm. if you're looking for something that's not going to break, you know, not, not spin the other way, the last thing you're looking for, you're, you're going to assume that that's going to be heater on the, on the inner half mm -hmm. if you're Chase Utley. So, of course, you, you cheat to get to it as soon as you see it come out of his hand and it's not spinning. And, uh, you know, obviously he got beat that way. It's, uh, it's a great, you know, like those, those nuggets over time, you know, for me, a personal one would be facing Manny Ramirez in eight and nine. He was with the Dodgers. And um, I think he was with the Dodgers in nine, eight. I think he was with the Cubs, I believe. Um, it, it, maybe I'm no, he's with the Dodgers. Uh, yeah, anyway, the, in 09, it was really Charlie Manuel kind of giving me the playbook. Hey, we're going to play the Dodgers in late July, early August, play them again in late August, and we're probably going to play them in the NLCS. You're going to face Manny as often as humanly possible, unless I have Roy or somebody else on the mound. So be prepared to, I don't care if you have to set him up, I don't care what you have to do. But Manny is going to do the research. He's going to be on top of his game and do what you got to do. If you got to give up a couple of hits in the regular season in, in situations that don't hurt you, go ahead and do it. It's a whole Maddox thing, home runs in spring training to guys, and they never got a hit off them in the, in the regular season or when it mattered. Um, I faced Manny probably four or five times during that stretch, and I threw him nothing but cutters. Cutter, 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 cutter. Some different shapes, some harder, some softer, but somewhere between 87 and 92 with a little bit of shape running away from them. And when I came into, uh, you know, a couple different situations again against them that mattered, bases loaded or, you know, runners on second and third and, and two outs, of course, there's a base open. We might want to walk Manny, but I had set him up so that the first pitch I threw him the last seven at bats or so was all cutters. We threw him a sinker that started middle. You got to trust it you throw it middle let it run to the inner half he's going to assume it's a cutter and he did and one was a pop-up in the infield the other one was a ground ball back to me actually like a swinging bunt he didn't even leave you know the box until I had already gotten possession of the ball and that was actually in our clincher in 09 to go to the world series and you just you know when you get moments like that where you know a hitter's tendencies you've set them up you've really spent the time to execute well, and it still comes down to, yeah. did I locate the pitch where I wanted to? And ultimately, I thought it started white and ended white. And I look at it on film and it started like maybe black in and ended up six inches off the plate. But Manning was assuming it was going the other direction, committed to it, and it worked out. But um, that's, those are little moments where, you know, if you understand what a hitter's trying to do and, you, you know, whether you're setting them up or just reading the material or reading the video or – you know, watching him, his last six or seven at-bats, that's that's really where having command is how you execute, but really having um, an understanding of of the takes, the, re you know, reading a swing, reading, you know, talking to other guys that are like, hey, do you think he's getting his foot down late? Do you think this? Do you think that? And it's really just being being a, a gatherer of information and the ability to to really compute that and, and execute well, that. How, well, how were you taught – to read batters like what are some of the basics that you, you would teach a young pitcher to look say you have a young pitcher who has command sure. and you're going to teach him now to what to look for with batters to then make a plan from that yeah um I, so when i was 19 20 years old i was with a pitching a set of pitching coaches but one specifically mike mason 
left-handed pitcher, pitched with the Cubs from Minnesota, great pitching coach. And he would have me try to explain, you know, you got to read bats. You know, so we're not talking about reading takes yet. We'll talk about that in a few minutes because this is where this advances. So a young hitter, you need to be able to tell when a guy fouls a ball off or swings and misses, was he out in front? Was he on time? Was he behind? And the you know, what most guys think, if a guy fouls it straight back, he's right on it. Well, physics don't agree with that. You, you got to know when the bat was in the zone. Like if, if you're late and you foul it back, it's just that the, that's the way the ball came off the bat. The, you know, the angle wasn't perfect. Now, obviously, the foul ball off the opposite dugout, yeah, he's late. If he fouls it off the pull side dugout, yeah, he's early. Those are easy reads, but they're still reads. And you need to understand, if you throw a fastball in the inner half and a guy pulls it foul down the line, he knows you're not throwing him another fastball there, but it's still hard to adjust. And that's what I had to be convinced of. I was like, well, he knows he was early. He's going to adjust. He's going to be looking for off speed. And they're like, even if he is, throw it, make him prove it, but don't throw him another heater because he might not come off of it. And that's not what you want to do. So I, Mike Mason was adamant about while you're in the stands doing the gun, because as a starter, um, you mentioned earlier, I, I pitched for however many, 17, 18, 19 years, parts of 14 in the big leagues. And for nine of those years, I was a starter. And for eight of those years, I was a reliever. So for nine years, especially in the minor leagues, you spend the day before you pitch doing the chart in the stands. Two days before you pitch, it was the gun in the stands. And yeah, you can get caught up and going to get, you know, a Coke from the concession stand, some nachos and just kind of do your chart or you can learn. And that's what Mike Mason said, kind of keep track of where the balls are being fouled off, what the guy's result is in that at bat what the pitcher does to adjust, whether the catcher called the different game or whether, you know, what were the adjustments made and reading the bat was easier and easier as and to the point where I didn't even have to think about reading the bat. It was such a simple concept, but it, I mean, when you're playing minor league ball, it's 140 plus games plus spring training, like the reps are there for a yeah. high school kid. It's watch TV. I mean, I hate to say it, but watch baseball games, get on, you know, get even if it's your dad and you're sitting with him and my kid doesn't watch enough baseball and he's a he's a darn good 16 year old player um you know probably good enough to play at a power five here soon but and he does he understands it because i taught it but man the reps are are where i feel like you it's kind of like teaching math baseball is math it, i mean it's it's applied math it's like music because it's the ultimate multitask but it's just math late early on time up down in out like you're just kind of, you know, preparing yourself to understand what, what the next pitch should be. And one of the things that I learned from the mound was where they're fouling the ball off. Because when the, when it comes through, if this is the end of the bat and this is, you know, getting up the label, if they're fouling it off here, you know, on time, but, but they're fouling it off here, like they're not squaring me up yet, you know? So maybe they're pulling off. What does that tell me about reading a bat? If they're here, I would rather a guy be here because that means he's not as good of a hitter. Good yeah. hitters get jammed up the label. They stay inside of a baseball. That's a harder read. And a well, lot of times, th those are the ones that get fouled straight back. They're on time, but it's up the label. And, and well, learning that. Let's take uh, certain pitches one at a time. Say you're throwing a, a, a sinker, right? And uh, you're a righty. You're throwing to a righty. If he fouls off left or right, you know he's late or early, right? But what other things would you tell, like if he hits it in the ground or if he fouls up 
like like specific ways of fouling off, what, what, what would that tell you? Yeah, so if, if the ball goes up off the bat on a sinker, he's out front. He's, he's mm-hmm. trying to beat it to the spot, and the ball just didn't have time to sink, and he, got, he beat it out front. feel like if they beat the ball straight into the ground, then they're, they're late. The ball, the action on the ball either beat them, they're late, or the speed of the ball beat them, and they're late. You know, so because there's two different ways to think about a ball sinking in on their hands is they're trying to beat the ball, hit the inside of the ball. You hear a lot of guys say, if you're a right-handed hitter, you know, I want you to try to hit the inside of the ball because if you're doing that, you're swearing up the ball. Well, if they get around it and they pull it foul, that's the easy read like we talked about. But it's the, the subtle foul balls that help you learn what they're trying to do. I mean, if they're really, really letting the ball get deep, they might not be looking fastball and they were just good enough to foul off the fastball. Mm-hmm. And, and so let's suppose you threw a slider and yeah. let's, let's consider that you can foul off to, to the left or the right up and down. So if we're talking about just foul offs right now, if a guy fouls off your right-handed pitcher to a right-handed batter, he fouls off your slider, the different ways. What, what does, what does that mean? Well, I mean, the good part about pitching is that I can add and subtract to that slider. I can I can throw it as a cutter, and it's going to look yep. the same out of my hand, or I can make it big. I can throw it 84, or I can throw it 91, or some range in there. And that's obviously advanced. Not, a, not The high school kid out there is not able to do it. A lot of minor leaguers or even, you know, big leaguers don't, maybe don't have that kind of feel. Um, I didn't have it until I was maybe 8 to 10 years in. Um, so think about the reps that it takes. But um, if if a guy's – if he recognizes the shape of the breaking ball, that usually was a red flag. You know, if a guy is on time but swung over it a little bit, fouled it off, or or cheated to pull, um, on time always you know, was a red flag for me. If he's on time, I need to get him off time. Like, it's a whole moniker of uh, disrupt timing. Like, and so what would to. you do to get him off time of your slider? Uh, you know, count depends on the count, depends on how we got there. Um, the story is always told, um, you know, with, with a hitter in every at bat, you know, yeah, is this the right pitch to throw in an 0-2 count? Well, what were the first two pitches? What were the first five if you fouled off three? So if I'm throwing him a slider in an 0-2 count and he fouls it off, maybe shame on me just a little bit that he had a chance to foul that off. I need it to start in the zone where he's got to honor it and it's got to end up out of the zone in an 0-2 count unless – I have reasoning on why I want to land it in the zone um, to get them off of it. I'm, I'm going to move. If I'm trying to throw to the, the outer third or even the black or off. And, and I see that he's covering that side of the plate. I'm probably throwing a fastball, either four seam or two seam black to in and up so that I can crisscross the, the, the movement pattern in the zone. I'm probably throwing something hard in on his hands to move his eye level to move him off the plate and buy myself myself real estate on the other side of the plate where I don't, if I move him correctly, I don't have to land anything outside of the zone to the opposite side. One, two, it comes down to execution. If I throw the slider and I land it on the outer half and down a lot of times he's, he's either going to wave at it, weak contact, which sometimes is hits or they take it. And it's just a recognition pattern. Like they, they can't recognize after getting moved, you know, the, the pitch as well. Whereas if you keep servicing them 
on the outer half, they're going to start to recognize patterns and, and they're probably going to square you up. Well, that's another good thing to get into too, is how do you know, or what are the tells it, that you can see when a batter is hunting a certain pitch? Guys will throw like a sweeper and they'll find that uh, batters are hunting the sweeper. Or if they're throwing a cutter, they're hunting that cutter. You know, well, there might be pitch. reasons in advanced scouting and knowing, you know, obviously that the plate is 17 inches, you give two and a half inches on each side and we're at, we're at 22 or whatever. Um, and, and if you really compute, if you start to think about movement, like it's really, you know, it's a lack of a better word, it's sexy to have like that 22 inch, you know, horizontal movement. But 22 inches there, if, if another pitch starts here and goes 22 the other way, we're covering like 44, which means anything that starts kind of middle third is going to end up out of the zone. So anything that starts on the thirds and starts to move back to the zone is a really hittable pitch. Or it's starting on the black, and as soon as they recognize that it's coming back, you know, it's going to end up landing in the hitting zone. So – it, it, arsenal it depends on arsenal it depends on what kind of movement you know you're working well, with well what do you what do you think i've always thought that it's better not good to have too big of break i always thought that you want you want a certain amount of break but not too big because then you can't you can't funnel your pitches and make them look the same that's exactly right um and and we oh. fight that with guys because some really talented pitchers can make everything move a ton and yeah, but the batter's really, got to be able to deceive him, you know. Well, I, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was a big league pitcher, but I hit, I hit 318 one year in AAA, and it wasn't because I'm a special hitter. I just was able to, you know, get you get a lot of fastballs middle. If you can't hit a fastball middle, you got problems of your own. But the recognition of pitches, you know, and, and understand how hard it was to hit in some, certain locations, it really made me rethink. Um, you know, when the ball started to move. If I saw early break, even on a breaking ball, these are triple A, these are good breaking balls, but if they broke early, it, you, you could really play the break or lay off of a pitch. But the one that was hardest, and I think technology is going to start leaning in this direction. There's really nothing out there right now that tells about the last 10 feet. But that last 10 feet is when the movement really that's when you have your decision matrix you know you've already made your decision to swing by 10 feet away so if you have late movement i mean i'm talking the the width of a baseball in yeah. the last i mean that's the the width of a baseball and the and you know the width of the bat at that point are the same well that's what that's what you want because i i really am focused on getting weak contact because i i think as a starter you want to conserve your pitches and you do sure. that by getting weak contact early, right? Yeah, I mean, if you have the stuff to be able to get the swing and misses, you know, God bless you, go get it. But, the, you know, 90% of pitchers are looking for weak contact in almost every count. And, mm -hmm. you know, for, for me, it was about the, the sharp late movement. I would always ask catchers or my catch partner, which is something that it, we definitely need to talk about. We can bring it back up in a little bit. Um, your catch partner is – really the guy that's going to give you immediate intel on how late the ball's moving. If you're not, if you don't have a catch partner that's locked in with you and can't feed you, um, Hey, you're getting a little, you know, you're a one thirty spin guy and it looks like it's coming in like this. You're, you're getting a little flat. You need that information so you can fix it. And mm -hmm. I always asked, you know, whether it was, you know, Justin Verlander or, or 
Craig Kimmer, I had some good catch partners. Um, or Adam Eaton. Adam Eaton was one of my best catch partners who pitched in San Diego and Philly and all that. He would say it, hey, that's not moving until like it's it's hitting the thumb of my glove. Like this is a big old glove and it's it's moving so late that it's catching me in the thumb and I'm not anticipating it. Like usually a big movement, you just catch it and throw it back. But we would give each other feedback on that same thing, big breaking ball that kind of just rolled in there unless it's a plus minus that's advantageous. I want a breaking ball that looks like my fastball and then has a little late shift. And, yeah. and it doesn't have to be, it just needs to be late and it needs to have a little bit of an angle, depending on what you're trying to do with it. You can flatten it out if you're trying to get a lefty out or if it's a righty and you want to get underneath their bat plane, is it, hey, is the shape of it good? You know, I always looked at the back of the baseball and if the ball was coming towards, you know, if, I guess if it was coming towards you, you want the spin as a hitter to, you know, the spin axis to be down here because it's in the shadow. And if you're, if you're, if the spin's up here, then it's in the sunlight, just like the sun's shining off my hand right now. But you can't see this, but you can see this. So all the spin axis stuff that we talk about with Rapsodo and Statcast and, you know, TrackMan and everything else, your, your catch partner should be able to see that. Hey, where's the dot? You know, mm -hmm. where, where's this? Because if, if, if you can see it and you're a pitcher and you're playing catch with me, I'm pretty sure this hitter is going to have a, a pretty good idea of where the spin is. And that's the cement mixer that, you know, everybody talks about. Well, that means the, the dot's not tight, which means your spin is, is not clean. And if the axis is like this, unless it's Mariano's cutter, you're probably going to get hit. So understanding all that is so important. And, and once you understand that, and if you do have good command, then now it comes down to that execution phase, which is just so important. Um, but setting up, you you asked a, a little bit about how I got there, and I'm going to go. I'm going to I'm going to talk a little bit. I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. We're going to talk about the takes. We talked about reading a bat, right? And right. I, I, that was advantageous. I learned a lot. You know, it gave me really good intel. And then when I was with the Kansas City Royals in the big leagues in 2001, Paul Bird, who was a phenomenal human being, great baseball guy, played in Philly was drafted by the Phillies, played in Atlanta, and then was with Kansas City. Well, he, you know, in Atlanta, he had Greg Maddox, he had Schmoltz, he had uh, Glavin, he had, you know, he, he just had that whole staff and that, that, that culture over there. He said his rookie year, second year, whatever year he was there with them, it might, might've been third or fourth year in the league. Maddox was talking to him about, hey, tell me what they're taking. He's like, take, what are you talking? He's like, when they take a pitch, they are giving you the information. What are they doing? What are they looking for? And he said he was lost for the first couple of weeks. Get it wrong, get it wrong, get it wrong, and then finally get a yes. And, um, and, and so I was the same way. Paul Bird said, hey, what are you doing during the game? And I was like, I'm watching the game. I mean, kind of a little – I was young. I was 22, um, 23 years old. And he's telling me, get on the top rail, and I want you to tell me what every – and we were playing the Yankees that day. I remember specifically watching – like not black Jeter, you know, whoever it was. I mean, 2001 team would have been, um, you know, definitely Jeter leading off and, and maybe not and the rest of them, but it was about takes. And when Derek Jeter kind of threw his hands out, like he always did on the take on the fastball right. in, he said, what's he looking for? And I was like, Oh man, he's gotta be looking, you know, for the ball away. And he's like, why? And that the why got me. Cause I was like, no, I guessed right. And now you want me to answer this with some intelligence. 
and I didn't get it right, but he was just kind of walking me through if a guy, you know, that's Jeter was advanced. Edgar Martinez, those guys were setting you up. Now that that's for way down the road. We can have another show on that. Well, well, for, for me and all the other people listening, tell us why. <laughs> well, so if a guy's looking on the, if he's looking away, if he's looking on the outside corner and a fastball is thrown in here and your focus right. is out here, it's going to, it's not, you can't tell whether it's black. You can't tell whether it's, you know, on the, on the third or whether it's going to, you know, hit you in the cup, you know, so you're going to have a reaction to move your midsection out of the way. If you're looking 20 inches out over the plate, because the ball starts and starts to come back. So if it's got 10 inches of run, you're looking, you know, a foot and a half away. If you're looking out there, you're going to have a reaction in. It's going to be wow. subtle. Now I'm doing it like, you know, big Frank Thomas used to jump out of the way and we goofingly call him the big skirt, but not to his face. Um, he's a big human, but those guys would take a, take the ball a little bit more exaggeratedly. But if a guy was looking out over the plate and just gave a subtle hip, you know, angle where he's opening up and looking for the ball in, you know, you know, if he's looking in, he's going to pull the ball or he's going to, his hips are really going to go. If he's taking the ball, and he's jumping out of the way of the ball in, he's looking out over the plate, he's going to have a reaction. The guys that are looking inside and the ball's thrown on the black away, they're, they're, they're literally almost going to have a – it's almost like a lean over the plate. Like, gosh, dog it, that wasn't where I was looking. But I'm, I'm going to track the ball in there. I'm going to have – you know, it's just it's, – it's the hips. When I mean, great I stuff. Guys behind me, you know, these, these are musicians, you know, but, you know, for the sake of a guy standing in that position – if his hips go this way, then he's looking to pull the ball. If his, if his upper tank, you know, goes this way, he's looking out over the plate. And it's reading their body language and also being familiar. Again, it goes back to watching film, advanced scouting reports. You know, if you understand what they do when they hit the ball really hard on the outside corner or on the outer half, if, the, if what they do when they hit the ball really well on the inner half, you'll see the start of that movement you'll see the beginning of them getting into a position to explode. And it looks different when they're doing it away versus in. It looks different when they're doing it to get on top and their hands are trying to stay on top of a baseball versus their natural path is to get underneath the baseball just a little bit. Well, well let's say they're, looking, say they're looking up and you throw it down. What, what is the reaction that you see up and down? Well, usually you see the posture doesn't change a whole lot. They just kind of, you know, it's, it's not surprise, but it's like, you know, they, they almost sit into their abs for just a second because they didn't get their pitch. So they're relaxing just a second. And then they see that ball down. And my, I mean, my thought process was always they relaxed. So when they relaxed and, and, and they set into their abs a little bit, you're like, man, that was probably a good pitch to hit if they were looking down there. Yeah. And do they you know this is the hard part that next pitch whether they're going to stick with their plan or whether they're going to change is there's a little bit of a mouse. roll. There's a little yeah, bit of a roll of the dice there. And a lot of that comes back to knowing what they look for in certain counts. Um, some of it's just gut instinct and, and saying, okay, I, I, if I don't know what to do here, my fail safe is going to be down and away, you know, and, and Maddox used to, Paul Bird said Maddox used to throw the ball down and away the first time through a lineup to kind of gauge their interest. I'm going to, I'm going to throw a ball. I'm going to try to dot it on the, the outside corner down, down and away. And I'm just going to read their body language. 
you know, and he had the advantage of, of like, you know, Eric Gregg back there on balls 10 inches off the plate, but he, you know, whether he put it on the corner or whether it was a little bit off, he got to read the, the human being and right. the human being would give him, you know, the information. And that's what Paul bird got me to do. Now I wasn't able to apply that other than maybe having a script or a plan on how to face certain hitters. I wasn't able to apply it till probably about midway through 2006 I was in Toledo, Triple Eight. I threw 199 and two thirds innings in Toledo that year. Um, wow! And and I had I had started throw cutter, started throw sinker, got away from the four seam, and some of it's for the same reasons you were talking about weak contact over trying to get swings and misses. And it was also about changing the scouting report. I was not getting called up to the big leagues, but I was having a good year. And part of that was your your scouting report's the same as it always has been: four seam, curveball, changeup big league average or lower than average type guy, you're not going to add value to the Detroit Tigers at the time who are trying to get to the world series and they did and they lost. Um, but it was really about understanding, you know, if I'm throwing these pitches and, and, you know, I get a little movement late, I'm getting soft contact about halfway through the season, I'm throwing those pitches and I'm starting to see hitters reactions to the, to they were taking. And I'm like, Oh God, I know what he's looking for. And it was like the, you know, taking myself from the dugout to actually standing there in, in that 10 to 15 seconds between pitches, I was able to kind of go over the film in my own head. Like, you know, and I, there were some times where I was wrong or the guy changed his mind or whatever, but I learned a lot about if I'm throwing a ball, if I start a guy in or I start a guy away, or I try to locate up, which I never really did then, so that wouldn't be a good example. But if I if I throw a ball down and I see the way a guy's hands stay up on their take, he's probably not going down there. You know, if a guy opens so up, then, in so then take, what do you do? What do you do then? Um, you know, I guess you revert back to what what are my what are my strengths in that moment. What are his strengths? And if they both line up, I'm going to go with my strength, unless it's Albert Pujols or Mark McGuire or Albert Bell and all those guys. Um, but for me, it was you, you, you gathered the information and then that plan based on the way his hips kind of opened or didn't or what his body language was after the pitch. Sometimes you throw a breaking ball, a guy take it, and you can almost see him you know, upset with himself for not recognizing it. And so that means he recognized it enough that you probably shouldn't throw it again. Or if you do use his newfound strength against him and throw the ball similarly, but just out of the zone a little bit or a little bit slower. And that was the, the nuance to being able to read body language. And Pedro always talked about, you know, watch the way the guy breathes, watch the way the guy digs in. Is he moving up or back in the, in the, you know, in the box, like, He's telling you what he's looking for. And Pedro was obviously taught a different brand of it, but the same stuff as Greg Maddox and Smoltz and those guys, you know, taught Paul Bird. And Paul Bird, there's an iteration of it to me. But Paul Bird was 83 to 85, maybe 86, 87 on the fastball with a good slider, but not a great one. But he would throw fastballs, you know, middle in to guys. And they would just lock up. They would just lock up and walk to the dugout. And I was like, how did you know? And he's like, um, well, first pitch slider, they got out over the plate. Second pitch slider, they were on it, but they fouled it off. So I threw another fastball out over the plate 
a little off and they they showed me they were still looking way out there so all i really need to do now is throw a fastball to the glove and he's out and if i pull it over the outside corner and guy hits it in a gap that's on me but i understood what he's looking for and the opposite would be start a guy out with a slider away he looks like he recognizes it i go fastball in he takes it i go fastball another couple balls in and he either defends or he takes it but his body language is okay i've officially you know committed to the inner half of the plate so he's opened up the outside corner all you got to do is land it there and he's out and it doesn't mean it's always going to happen like that you get the you know the the guy throws the barrel at it and ends up hitting a, a flare down the line but for the most part what you're looking for in those advantage counts one two oh two you know you've earned the right to get soft contact and if you know what pitch to throw great and I guess the default setting in a lot of those, you know, counts is where can they do damage in an 0-2 or 1-2 count? Most of the time it's on the inner half of the plate, out on their front foot, especially lefties, where they just black out and they pull a ball in the stands. But for the most part, you've earned the right to, to one side of the plate and probably one, you know, quadrant up or down. So all you really have to, if you land it there, you know, and he cheats to go get it, then he's taught you something else on the next swing or the next take. And then you can go to the other side, but it's that the hips, the front foot, um, their upper body, the angle changes. Like I said, it just changes a little bit more. The spine angle changes a little bit to get to the outer half. You know, you're still going to get in that position, but you're going to start rotating earlier to get to the ball in. And if you're what over, do you mean by if he, what do you mean by if he cheat, if he cheats to go get it? Say say that again. Uh, what do you mean by if he cheats to go get it? Uh, just an early rotation. You know, mm -hmm. the, you, you'll, you'll either see their body start to turn or you'll see their barrel not go straight to the ball. It'll start to start to turn to get to the ball, which wow. means they've rotated and now they're going around the baseball. And sometimes that ends up down the line. Sometimes it ends up in the hole. But typically when they make contact with the ball like that, it's spinning sideways off the bat. And so mm -hmm. if you can see the shape of the ball down the line, if they're inside the ball and they square it up, it's, it's not going to bend. It's going to stay pretty, pretty straight. So they foul a ball off 10 feet foul, but it's straight. They're, they did everything right to get to that. They just pulled it foul. But if they mm -hmm. get around it, they, they had to rush to get the barrel out there. And so they're around the ball and early. That's two flaws. You know, if they're just early, but they square it up, you're playing with fire if you're in the inner half again. You know, and that's where you know, talked about Bronson. If he threw a fastball in and Utley pulled it foul and he throws a changeup in there and he swings over it or he makes sweet contact, it's because he has already set up the pitch by throwing a fastball in and Utley reacting to it. If Utley doesn't mm -hmm. react to it, Bronson's smart enough to know, I probably don't need to go in there again, you know? Mm -hmm. And then – the other area, I think, too, is the situation on the field. How many outs you have, who's on base. So if you got a guy on third with two outs and you're, a righty comes up, I'm sure there's certain locations you're not going to throw the ball to, right? Yeah, I mean, again, it comes back to you know, who the hitter is, what his past is. But typically, if, I, if it's no name, no label, just spring training game and number 78 comes up to the plate, I, I understand that in order for him to get a hit the other way, he's got to do a lot of things right. And if I miss on the inner half, it's easy to pull a ball in the air and, and do some damage. So 
I'm going to play all those in and I'm going to start them out probably with a cutter or a bigger, you know, bigger cutter, almost slider outer half going away from him. And if he squares it up and hits a clean single to right field, I'll tip my hat, but I'm not going to give him a first pitch sinker starting middle that ends up in because it's not a take situation. You know, even if, even if I don't know the kid, he's probably coming up there looking to, you know, I want to get this run in because I'm trying to make a team, you know? So you, you use some of the wisdom or lack thereof uh, against guys. Also when guys are struggling, um, some guys struggle and they take some guys struggle and they're in swing mode. And so understanding what guys do typically when they're not good, going good, um, you want to get the outs when you can get them, you know, and, and when guys are struggling, their body language, their, their early hip movement, all of it's there. When guys are going pretty well, everything's on time. It's clean. It's actually hard to read them because they're almost, when you're, when a guy's going good, they can't cover both sides of the plate, but it feels like they can. Like you throw, you throw a, a, just a, you know, bastard pitch in a bastard location and they, they, they don't even flinch. Like they saw it the whole way and it's like, okay, um, what do I do here? How do I handle this? Do I just take my medicine and hope that he hits a blind drive at somebody because he's just going good? Or do I mess around and try to set him up for the next time he comes up later in the game and see whether or not I can use that to my advantage? All that has to happen in like the 10 seconds after the first yeah. pitch, you know? So that's now, uh, that, that, that the reading the hitters part, it is – I'm thinking about the amount of reps that I would have had. And if I was throwing somewhere between 150 and 190 innings every year at 19, 20, 21, and then that's introduced to me at 22, you know, I had a Tommy John surgery a year after that um, and came back from that. That kind of stymied the, the workflow, so to speak, because um, I was in survival mode for a little while. And then when I, again, when 06 finally came back and I was throwing and pitching on a regular basis, it, it like, it's like it surfaced one day. And I was able to call back on all the repetitions that I'd had in the past. And the, the advantage was the age. I mean, I guess if you're able to play until you're 28, then physically you're still kind of in your prime. But mentally, if you've played long enough, you've got the advantage of having seen a lot and you're able to thousands, tens of thousands of reps. And I think that's why I say watch film. I mean, the rep, sometimes watching film isn't really about even understanding what to look for in film. It's about watching the rep, getting the reps, you know, watching a guy take, watch a guy swing, watch a guy take. You never know what you'll learn. I mean, I kind of developed my own strategies on it that were mine based on the way that I gather information, the way that I execute on it, all that stuff. So, you know, to the younger guys or even dads or coaches out there that are trying to figure out what to do, man, it's individual. You want to introduce concepts because I feel like that's how athletes function is you give them a concept and they kind of make it their own, you know, where they take their hands across when they hit, you know, what they think when they throw a, a splitty or a slider. I mean, everybody's just a little bit different on how they compute it. Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, it is something that you have to look at uh, different batters and repetition to pick up, but you still need someone like you to explain what are you looking for? And then what is a game plan after that? Like when we talked about someone who's hunting a slider, well, what does that look like? All right. You're, the way you described is up, his upper body is kind of leaning over, right? And he's hunting it, right? 
And then to counter that, if you're coming in with a fastball, right? Or maybe there's some other combination you can, you can use yeah, too, it might, right? It might be the, the, the way that they flinch on their take. Everything said, if he swings, he's going to bend, he, he would have been successful right there. So the pitch I just threw is probably not doubling up is probably not the right move. You know, yeah, and, and I, if never, they don't, I've never been for doubling up. What's that? I've never been for doubling up. Um, yeah, there are times for it. I've, I've, I've called a catcher out and said, we're going to throw as many cutters here as humanly possible because I just don't think this guy and the, and the attack angle um, that I'm using the term now, that's what it is. But back then it was, he just cannot square up my cutter for whatever reason. It, it is, you know, an Achilles heel for the way this guy's back comes through the zone. So we're not going to play with anything else. That's a unique situation. I think doubling up um, is, is it's, it's almost, you almost never throw the ball in the same spot when you double up. You think you do, but, you know, usually a curveball, you know, you throw one, you throw the next one. It's either hanging a little bit or it's a little bit below the zone. Maybe it's a little better, but they're never the same. And so as long as the plan is to go, you know, Texas two-step, slow, slow, fast, 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 slow, out, out, in, 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 out. Like, I keep those in mind because whenever you're in, in, out doesn't mean fastball, fastball. It just means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move the ball on the inner half of the plate to this guy. It could be a front door cutter and then drawing an X with a sinker to have established the in, in. And then I'm going out. doesn't mean I'm throwing soft to go out. You know, that's in, in, out, 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 in, up, up, down, 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 up. I mean, you're really just drawing X's in a three-dimensional space to attack a hitter. Who are some of the best command pitchers you saw, and what do you think made them good with command? Like, how did they train? Yeah, um, I think my, my initial 99 uh, was my call-up year in the big leagues, and I remember watching um, Jeff Montgomery, who was a closer for Kansas City. And it was methodical catch play. It was repeating the delivery, repeating the way it felt. And, you know, and a cat, again, a catch partner that was bought in. And then I think about Jeff Supon and Paul Bird, who were on the teams a little bit later on, um, 2000, 2001. And it was the same thing, like very repeatable delivery, intent to throw the ball in catch play where they wanted to. And bullpens were never just going through the motions. There was a, a, a script to, to the bullpen. Um, and I know you, you know, command tracker, you talk about having that. Um, there's, there's something valuable to having a plan and executing the plan. And if you don't, at least you learn something from not executing it. But those guys were really adamant to me because I had stuff compared to what they had. Um, not, not 99 and hundred, but you know, 90 to 94 as a, as a younger guy with some good off-speed stuff, but I was in two Oh, two one, you know, three Oh counts nonstop because I was nibbling and I, I was, I was hyper athletic and just trying to throw stuff at guys and stuff without command is just kind of, you know, a hitters, you know, celebrating the dugout. They're fighting over the bat rack to come up there because they know they're going to get into hitters counts. And then I'm predictable. And so if I think about watching Greg Maddox or I think about watching, you know, film of guys like Roy Halladay, it never felt like they were ever outside of their mechanics. 
it was repeatable, 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 repeatable. And that I watching Roy Halliday go about catch play, going about his lifts, going about, you know, three, three computers open in front of him on a, on a, a flight going over his last couple games and his mechanics and how he was attacking teams, see what he was predictable in, in doing the last, you know, 10 to 15 at bats uh, of the lineup he's going to face. And then the last one was, you know, 200 at bats rolling for each guy that's, that he's going to face that day. That was his preparation. And then, so, so that was like the preparation here. And then the execution of that preparation is catch players, bullpens, or, you know, in between innings, you know, knowing that you're going to throw a couple extra breaking balls this inning that you haven't thrown, you know, Hey, we're going to work second time through or third time through the lineup. We haven't really introduced the breaking the curveball, So we're going to throw a couple more in the fifth and sixth inning in warmups. I mean, it makes sense when we say it right here, but most guys are going to do the same thing they've always done in their warmup, you know, all the way through. Now there's value in that. We just said repeatable, 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 but with some common sense weaved in, if I'm going to attack this lineup with, yeah, I've got three righties coming up and I'm probably going to throw a ton of cutters. Then I'm probably going to throw a hair more in so, so I can command it prior to the catcher throwing down on me starting the, the inning. Um, and that's just, you know, feel, you know, my, again, my son, you know, 15 last year, one of his good friends is going to be a good, a really good pitcher. He's not raw. He just hasn't pitched at that higher level yet. And he was getting behind one of the best teams in the country nonstop. And he got away with it first time through. And I heard my son grab him and be like, Hey, in between innings, when you're warming up, let's find out which breaking ball. He's got a curveball and a slider. Let's find out which breaking ball you can land early in the count. Because right now you're running to it late, but there's, you're just jerking it out of the zone or it's spinning. It's like, you know, what's the plan to make sure that you have maybe better command of that, you know? And, and I remember like thinking that's, Okay. I mean, he's listening, but it was, it was him as like the shortstop or middle infielder coming up and being like, Hey, we got it. We got to control the situation. He's not saying it like that. He's just saying, Hey, let's try to get ahead and counts. Let's try to, you know, get the ball on the ground. Let's look for weak contact. But you know, that's 15 and 16 year old kids trying to figure it out. And, you know, there at least was a little bit of a plan there. And I appreciated that. And both guys were open to it. Sometimes guys will fight you on, you know, what do you know? You're, you're just the same as me. Um, that's where a coach comes in and, and is able to say stuff. But yeah, the, the guys that I think about in that era that had command, Pedro was another one that he had command, but if I think about his delivery, it was similar, but he had times where he spun off a ton that, you know, he went ahead and tried to get 98, 99 because he could, um, you know, but he was a command guy, but he had three elite, you know, eights on the on 80 scale, um, he, he was a guy that had stuff and command and, and you know, Nolan Ryan early in his career was, you know, just pumping gas everywhere. And yeah. later in his career, obviously he had much, much, much better command, but you know, the, the looking at what guys did in catch play really is what echoes to me. I've played catch with a purpose, a ton. Jamie Moore would be a perfect example of this. Jamie, was all, I mean, he's like having a pitching coach as, as your teammate. And he would say, you know, have you been working on that in flat ground? Have you been working that on that in catch play? And I was all, yes, I'm, I am. But it was always the younger guys or, you know, Cole Hamels was young and around Jamie Moyer and he just soaked it up. 
And he, his catch play was serious. If you disrupted his 20 or 15 flat ground pitches, he was upset because what kind of, what kind of routine would guys like that, you and other pitchers, what would a routine in flat ground? No, it's a good, that's a great question. Cause I think that that's what you would need to know is, you, you know, whether you're long toss and doing some pull downs, because that's what's scheduled for you that day to catch that's, that's not necessarily as much the catch play that I'm talking about. I'm talking about from 70 feet in. Yeah. And for yeah. some guys, they needed to, they needed to throw a change up at 70 feet with high intent just to get out front. And then when they worked into like 58, 57 feet to throw flat ground and you got to have the, the catch partner that'll get in a squat and catch it was hey i'm gonna throw two glove side fastballs you know to make sure that i'm staying closed i'm not flying open and i'm gonna stay closed and i want to get that command to the out, outside half of the plate to a righty if i'm a right-handed pitcher glove side i want to nail two to three there and then i want to move to the outer you know to the arm side and i want to you know play with the run on my fastball is it is it sharp is it early you talk to them you know, hey, is, is that big? Are they seeing it early? And then I usually worked about five or six fastballs. I'd throw a couple change-ups off the fastball. And then I'd go back to, I'd never go from change-up to breaking stuff or cutter. It was always, I would reset myself by going glove side fastball. So if I, if I were going through my, my 20 pitch flat ground, it's three fastballs here, two fastballs here, two or three change-ups, and then back to a fastball glove side. Two or three breaking balls, back to a, a glove side fastball. And it just, it was what cleaned up my mechanics. And so I feel like knowing yourself helps with the script, knowing that that works. Some guys are, you know, change-up resets everything because they've got to get extension. They've got to be patient with themselves. They've got to get the ball down, and that resets everything. So knowing that that might be the pitch that every coach has ever, hey, that change-up resets everything. Make sure you throw that before you go to the next one. It's just knowing yourself. But that 20-pitch pin, and almost fin I almost finished, maybe later in my career, I'd finish with a sequence or two that I was going to execute in-game. And it might be cutter, with some, with some angle, flatten out the cutter second pitch, and then I'm going sinker in. That might be a three pitch sequence that I'm gonna use. It might be breaking ball, bigger cutter, shorter cutter, and that's my three pitch sequence to a righty that I don't wanna run anything into the, the inner half of the plate. But that's just some sequences that, before we talked about tunneling, I, you know, I, and that's what you're really looking for in catch play is, can, number one, can I command? Because if you're not commanding, we can talk tunneling you know, years later when you get command. But once you have command and you can put the ball into the four quadrants or break it up into 12 or 15, and you're really trying to, can I locate here so that I can get the movement to go down here on the next pitch? You know, because if I get, if the movement of my fastball is this way, then I want my cutter slider to move this way. If I'm getting a little action this way, then I want the curveball to go like that. Like we talk about it now, it's, it's the, you know, it's normal, but that was I would ask my catch partner or the catcher, is that playing like a fastball long enough? Is, does, is it selling in the zone? Did I start that high enough? Did I start it low enough? You know, and that, that feedback from the catcher or catch partner was the only real feedback you had outside of game reps. 
now they record every pen in the big leagues. They record everything, you know, and, and good for them for doing it. But I think there's some paralysis by analysis, you know, oh. being able to adjust in between pitches allowed me with the feedback from my catch partner is, Hey, was that ball up enough that my curveball didn't go above or below it on the next pitch? Tunnel. Well, yeah, that's when they look at a track man or something like that before a game in a bullpen. Uh, they're just looking at the numbers. Yeah. And my son had talked about that, had uh, one year in the beginning of the year, he was looking just at numbers, getting the bigger break, and just looking at the machine. Uh, Gil went to a game, was having bad results for the first month. Then he stopped trying to do that. He said, all right, in practice, I'm working on my movement. But then before a game, I'm just working on what is my current movement? Like you just said. Yeah. Is it moving this way or that way? And then he knows how to, to mix the pitches so that you said that they that to the batter, they look the same, but then break different later. Yeah. Because if you're just looking at the amount of movement, it's not telling you how you can combine the pitches, which when you're playing at the actual game, you're going to have to throw sequential pitches and they have to work together, right? Yeah, I mean, before all the the data, it was the hitter. The hitters will let you know. You Every know, you, guy on the show has always said that the hitters let you know when, and that's right. But I think the tools like TrackMan and Rapsoda, all those things are they're fantastic. They are. They're and fantastic. They're great, they're great for training, and they can teach you how to get more movement or where your movement's going. But then there comes a time we have to step aside and learn how to use that movement. And that's what I think you're talking about is how do they, how to get those pitches to work together? Yeah. What does it mean? You know, how did we get there? Um, what, what is, what is like your son's making the adjustment right now? What do I have today? And sometimes it was, you know, I can't get the cutter to do anything. And that's yeah, my, that's, you know, it, and so what saying. am I going to do to get a guy out? Yeah. There's a saying at DBU that they always say, which was winners find a way. All right, and so when he's on the mound, uh, that's what he's always thinking. If things aren't going well, you got to figure out a way, Absolutely. right? You've been there. You've been there for what 19 years, where there are days when it's just not happening. You got to figure out. Okay, now what do I do? You know, it's funny. You know, I remember talking to Jim Leland, Charlie Manuel. I mean, great managers. Um, you know, God bless Jim Leland was so good at the yeah. honesty and communication and accountability and, and you just appreciated it. But the, the one commonality between all of those managers, LaRusso is the same way. If you think about the best pitchers they ever had or the guys they used the most, they pounded the zone. The one thing that you had to get beat by guys hitting balls, not by base on balls or getting behind in counts. And I would not have been attractive to any of those three men or any manager to that matter early in my career because I was frustrating. You have the stuff and you're not throwing it. You're not getting ahead and counts. You have command, but you're scared to throw the ball over the plate. And that's probably because of all the RBI baseball I played on Nintendo as a kid. I was facing all those guys and, you know, they banged the ball around. But the truth of the matter was the, the investing in command and throwing strikes gave me the confidence to know that when I get in a game, it, we got to get this over early. I want you out in two, three, four pitches max. One yeah. would be great. And if they know I'm throwing strikes, guess what a hitter's got to do? He's got to swing. 
You know, so there's no more Oakland A's money ball approach to we're going to take pitches until this guy gives us a good count. Well, that's not going to happen. I'm going to throw strike one. I'm probably going to throw strike two. And then, I, then we can start because now I have the, the house's advantage. Right. I'm 100% behind that approach. That's what I'm always talking about. It's like, don't waste any pitches. Yeah. Get in there and attack. And, and you know, if, if you're nibbling and you're out of the zone, the batter is going to pick up on that pretty quick, especially nowadays with the technology. Yeah. Uh, so what you can do, I've always said is that uh, when I talked to my son, as I said, that the batters know nowadays exactly what you throw, exactly how it moves, how fast it is. They know all of that. They don't know where and what you're throwing. Yeah. I said, that, I think that's your weapon, right? Well, if, if you're in a 2-0 count, you can gamble. Like I'm looking for something in, you know, where he misses in these counts is usually here. I can go ahead and tunnel vision. And if, and if he throws it out of that zone, so what? I'm 2-1. I'm still in a hitter's count. But as soon as yeah, you get one, times. you force there, you force the passivity. You force them to have to back off of the aggressiveness. The other thing I've thought about too is I think there's two ways to approach kind of like that style of pitching, which would be uh, kind of a, a, a proactive or reactive, meaning that if you're reacting what the batter you see totally, that's one way. But don't you think there's a proactive too? Like you might be able to throw a pitch at a certain spot that you know he's not going to do anything with, but the purpose of that pitch is to set up the next pitch. Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so um, I think of that as like proactive, you know? Yeah, that's a good way to, to look at it. You know, um, I think you have to be both though. Because as soon as you yeah. – yeah, it's yeah. like it's it, they're tethered together. Let's put it that exactly. way. Exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah. So I'm going to be proactive in how I approach this pitch, but based on all the information I'm going to get back from this pitch, whether it was a strike, whether it was where I wanted to land it, um, wherever it landed is going to be my basis for the next pitch, what the hitter does, right. that, all that. That's reactive, reactive. But now you take that information and you say, okay, now let me figure out what I'm going to do here. Uh, He's 0-1. I want to get to 0-2. All right. The quickest way is I'm going to throw a pitch here. Then I'm going to throw another pitch here. Now I'm going to be two one uh, one two. Or yeah, perfect kind of, world, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's then that's when everything's going well, you do execute at that level. Um, what mm -hmm. I what I learned and what I got from feedback with hitters. I mean, and and a lot of that is just sitting down at the dinner table with the hitters and talking to them and and figuring out where their brain goes. You know, on, on, you know, I was trying to throw a ball down and away. I missed up and in. What are you thinking after that? Yeah. Because, like, because Sean I'm going to use was, that information. I just changed your eye level. So I'm, I'm going to go back out down and away. Well, he knows you're going down there, but he's like, I'm never successful, you know, trying to hit that pitch after I got moved. So, you know, I'm still looking, I'm going to look in her half now instead of staying out there because. It, I'm just not, I know myself well enough to, to, you know, not bait myself into, you know, weak contact. So there's, it's, well, it's always, was, I think it's the right way to say it. Every pitch should have a proactive element to it. And then after the ball leaves your hand, everything after that is reactive until you make a decision again. And then you're being proactive again. I guess that's the, that's the cycle of, of the decision. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, my son was talking about a schoolmate that uh, he faced in AAA, 
he was for the Phillies. Uh, I think he had the most home runs for the Phillies in the AAA that year. And, uh, you know, after the game, he got he got him out, I think, three or four times. And then one time he had a home run off him. But he called him up and they're talking about, like, hey, dude, you know, when you threw this, it tied me up over here. And they were kind of helping each other about what was successful throwing in on a lefty and what didn't work. Absolutely. Have you had cases like that, like guys where you talked like you were friends with? Um, yeah, I mean, most of the guys would give up information, you know, immediately because they love talking hitting. You know, in, in the, I'll, I'll, I'll spin it even this way. Jeff Rebele was a veteran um, with uh, Kansas City. He's with Kansas City, but he's been, you know, played for years. And he's an LSU guy. I'm from Baton Rouge, so he gravitated to me a little bit. But he would say, this is the big leagues. There are guys' jobs that, that they get paid to, to look at spray charts and then put our defense where they're supposed to go. So when, when we're throwing certain, when you're told, your catcher says, hey, we're throwing this pitch in this location right now because of everything that's happening behind you. The entire defense is geared to the pull side. So if we throw a ball down and away and a guy hits it into the hole at second base and your second baseman is playing behind the bag, you know, yeah, you executed a good pitch, but you didn't set, like, if he barrels a ball into the hole on the pull side, he's out. You know, so he would just say, check your defense. You know, they'll tell you, number one, what the hitter is looking to try to do, the majority of counts, and where you can miss. You know, if you're not sharp that day, where do you want to miss? You're like, where, where, where's the damage going to happen? And, and that was a learning process for me is like, oh, wait, they're all thinking. You know, I mean, you don't think that way. You're, you're in such a bubble of your own that you don't really tap into the why until you've gotten a little more confident and a little bolder and you've asked enough questions and you've talked to hitters. And sometimes the hitters would like completely shift gears like that. Well, do you ever look at the defense? Do you ever look at this? I mean, in the air, yeah, they're, they're going to be to the backside, but on the ground, they're pull side. Well, that goes back to what I was asking before about uh... – pitching to the situation on the field. Mm-hmm. Now, it's like where the batters are, uh, some of the runners are, where your infielders are, that's important too. And what what's the batter going to try to do? And based upon what he's trying to do, you're going to feed him pitches that are not going to allow him to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, funny enough, when, when the wind's blowing in at Wrigley, hit it as far as you can. They're, they're not going to hit homers that day. But when it's blowing out, you better get the ball down. And same thing with Boston. When the, when, when the weather's good and it's hot out, all these righties come up and they're trying to pull the ball off the monster because they can, because they don't have to hit it that hard to get it in the air off the monster. Um, Yankee Stadium, especially now, that, that left, you know, I mean, right field corner, but pull side to the lefty. I mean, so many hitters from Matsui we talked about earlier, but Granderson, Tito, like all those guys were trying to pull the ball down that side because it's a short porch. And so it's the reason why when you think about Yankees success, left-handed pitchers pop up in your head a lot because we're trying to Andy Pettit, you know, all those guys, um, they're, they're just trying to avoid where the damage is going. That's why a really good right-handed pitcher in Boston is going to throw half of his starts at home in a perfect world. Yeah, it plays really well into the success of the ballpark. 
you go out to Seattle where it's a big yard and you can stay in the middle of the park, you don't have to be perfect that day. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I guess all of those factors come in and you pitch to the situation, you pitch to the ballpark, you pitch to the lineup. You know, I talk about this. I think we mentioned it when we were on the phone, kind of as a precursor to this. I played with Chipper Jones in 12, his last year. And I had faced him, not a bunch, but enough where he kind of knew what my tendencies were against him. And he's like, man, you throw a four-seamer right down the middle to me first pitch almost every time. And I said, well, so far, every time. <laughs> That's what I told him. And he's like, well, what's the, what's the logic there? I was like, well, you don't swing, but like 35% of the time first pitch. And I want to get ahead. I want to turn the 330 career or 310 career Chipper Jones into a 270 hitter. You know, if you'll take another one and I get a call and you're 02, well, yeah, now Chipper's hitting 255. Mm-hmm. So for, that was me pitching to the situation. I'm like, if I go 1 0, 2 0, 3 1, the 311 career hitter or whatever Chipper is, is now a 440 hitter. Not quite that good, but you know what I'm saying. It, it just yeah, yeah. inflates the numbers pitch to pitch. And so, which guy do I want to face? Do I want to face the Chipper Jones who's in a 2-0 count? Or do I want to face the 0-2 or 1-1 Chipper? I'm, I'm going to face the guy where I have some of some – every advantage is, is in his favor. He's a Hall of Famer. You know, so if I'm out there facing him, how do I get advantages against him, Albert Pujols, Shohei, Mike Trout, those guys? Well, certainly not getting behind him counts. You know, so if, if you can kind of invest in that thought, thought process as a player, as a coach, as a catcher, like, don't set up on the edge. Like, force the guy to get the ball over the zone. Well, that's a formula for anybody, I think. Uh, get ahead in the count. Don't walk, guys. You'll be successful. I mean, because batters, even the best ones, are not hitting, you know, everything out of the park. You know? Yeah, you can't defend a walk. We, we, you know, free 90s are, you know, everybody on the field, including you as the pitcher, you know, on the defense. Like, your manager, your pitching coach, everybody in the dugout, your, your infielders, your outfielders, your catcher, the, the energy just gets zapped because you just, you just allowed the, the offense to advance and there was nothing we could do about it. And, mm-hmm. and I really feel like that, you know, you gain confidence with your, with your players, especially up the middle of the field when you pound the zone. And so, you know, I don't know, when, when I played infield and guys threw a ton of balls, I wasn't as, as you know, I, I, I mean, I put out the same effort, but you, you don't have the same bounce to your step. You don't, you can't stay hard focused that long. So if, if you're throwing 25, 30 pitches an inning, you know, we may, I think you and I mentioned that too in our last call, all of this talk about arm injuries and all that stuff. And I really think, you know, if you're throwing 25, 30 pitches an inning, you're taxing your body at a really high rate. You're, you're going to give up cheap hits because your defense isn't as locked in as they are. When you throw 12 to 15 pitch innings, I mean, the action's happening. Like, yeah. hey, this guy's going to throw strikes. He might give up some, some lasers, but, you know, you, you got to be on your toes. And so I just feel like that energy for a pitcher, you're not, if you get hit, you're going to get hit sometimes. You're going to have some games where you go five, you give up six, it's a six to five game when you leave it and you just didn't have it that day, but you didn't walk anybody. They got nine hits. You forced, you forced it all to happen. That's respectable in a clubhouse. Your manager, you know what? He didn't have it today, but he didn't shy away from throwing the ball over the plate. Yeah. Make him earn it. Right. Yes, indeed. 
you know, there's a thing I, I always tell my son, uh, no free passes, you know, yeah. you know, you know, uh, we always joke from that Monty Python from the uh, Holy Grail with the, the night is by the, the little bridge. It says none shall pass, you know, <laughs> so it's what it needs to be right. You know, but, but it's really important because even if you hit up a bomb, like you said, if you've got nobody on base, all right, it's one, it's bad, but it's only one. It's you not even that bad. It's, you know, uh, it, you prove that that's what you're going to have to do to beat me today. Yeah. And, and they and all know how tough make, it is to hit. Hitting's tough. Yeah, you can make a great pitch and, you know, they still had it out of the park. It happens, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you definitely. Um, I, one thing about, we talked about um, flat ground and bullpens and stuff like that. One thing that I think a lot of, uh, I mean, I think a lot of kids do it, but maybe it needs to be focused on is, you know, finishing your last couple pitches out of the stretch in between innings, um, focusing on the stretch in your bullpens at least half of the time, yeah. because the, you know, the majority of the time you're going to pitch is going to be with a runner on, you know, one of the statistics that I look at first and foremost is whip walks plus hits divided by innings pitched. And in high school, I mean, if you want to be successful, it needs to be a sub one. You know, I, I really feel like that, that that's, you know, where you need to be in the, at the, at the college level, it's probably a one, two, one, one, three, one, three, five yeah. to one, four at the big league level. That's how many runners you're averaging per inning. So if you're averaging one, eight to two, <laughs> that means yeah. two guys are getting on base every single inning. And that's just a threshold that you just can't hold. You can't, you, you it's, you're going to give at some point. And, yeah. um, you know, my, they asked our, uh, my son's high school team, pretty good team. They had to write some of their starters, you know, we had to write goals on, on uh, the whiteboard. And some of them were like uh, 30 wins. Okay. Um, a team batting average of 350 or so, whatever it is. I mean, that's really high, but I'm just throwing his was a sub one whip for the entire pitching staff. Yeah. That's awesome. And he probably educated some kids that are like, what's whip, you know? And, and then, you know, it's just, Hey, if we give up, the fewer runners we give up, the fewer damage innings that we can give up, and probably the more games we're going to win. And he's a shortstop and a pitcher, and the rest of the most high school kids are playing two ways. If you understand that, you and that's your goal, you, if you fall short and you're a 1-1-5 as a team, I bet your record wins 30 games. You know, I think, I think all of the other things kind of fall in place because if you're having quick innings, your team's going to hit better. Because yeah. you're going to stress out the other pitcher because he's going to get back out there sooner than he has time to, to you know, respond and, and recover. And I just think that there's, you know, so much value in having certain, you know, goals in mind going into a year. And they don't need to be – I want to throw 90 – every kid wants to throw 90 in high school. You know, every, you know, and you look, not every kid is. The average high school fastball, I think, is like 82, 83. You know, so the reality is how are you going to get people out when you're throwing 84? You're going to have to command. You're going to have to repeat. You're going to have to hold runners. You're going to have to field your position because in high school, they bunt a bunch. I'm just thinking about it that from that level. And then as you go up, you've advanced to the next level of understanding what the other team's trying to do to you. Yeah, it's it's same. It's more refined as they go up, definitely. When we go back to some of the great managers you, you've had, too, I, I was talking in an episode before about uh, like when Bochi and uh, Baker had won a World Series recently, they had teams that 
I said, had the right ingredients, but not the right mixture until they came in. And they had set the culture. And I, I think culture is very important. Character and culture is really important for a team. Uh, what did you see in those managers that let them uh, foster that kind of character and culture in their players? Well, it was, um, I guess the, the trickle downhill here is that they didn't micromanage. Um, you know, when they, co they their coaching staff was extremely valuable and allowed to coach the ways that they wanted to, you know, infield coach, catching instruction, whatever it is, everything was kind of, you had trusted personnel, you trusted the guys on your roster. And then once the game started, a Jim Leland or, or, um, a Charlie Manuel or all those guys, that's when they manage. That's, that's what, because ultimately it is their team. The decisions are going to come down on them, but they didn't mm -hmm. micromanage until it was time to micromanage. And that culture, that's a culture of trust that, you know, if, if I'm a manager and I walk by a guy doing, you know, you know, in the cages, hitting with a guy, and I, I guess I demean the hitting coach by taking over that moment then the culture gets fractured just a little bit versus we've talked about this behind the scenes. This is our combined strategy and you're executing it perfectly outstanding. Now, if I want a guy to lay down a bone or hit backside in, in, in a bit, in a big situation, that's a different, that's, that's, that's different. But those guys trusted their personnel and, and had confidence in their players. They were honest. The honesty hurts. I will say that. I think Jim Leland was on, yeah, yeah, you know, he's a Hall of Fame inductee now. He was on with uh, MLB Network the other day with D-Row and, and those guys. And, and DeRosa had already talked to him prior to going to USA manager, you know, for Team USA in the, in the Classic. And one of the things that, you know, that D-Row was kind of wondering about that Leland kind of touched on was, you know, the honesty. You're, if you're honest with players, you might lose them for 24 hours but you won't lose them forever. But if you're dishonest, they'll never trust you again. And I remember Leland talking to me, I think I was four starts into the 2007 season and I had been okay, but not good enough. And we were facing the White Sox next time out, I was gonna start. And he said, listen, um, this team made it to the World Series last year and upstairs is gonna get antsy really quick if we don't win games. So whether it's this start or the next one, it, this is big for you. You're going to have to go out there. You're going to have to execute at a high level. And I just wanted to let you know, like, I believe in you. You pitched your, your, your nuts off last year, all that stuff. He's like, but I'm, you know, this is an execution level that maybe you've never been familiar with before. Haven't been in Kansas city and Cleveland before this stop. This is a world series caliber roster. We have, you know, we're expected to win. I'm expecting you to come in here and win baseball games. And if you can't do it, we will find somebody else that can. And he was on his fungo in the outfield. I was like 10 feet, 10 feet from Gary Sheffield, who had had him before. And when Leland walked off, Sheff was like, there it is. He will tell you how it is. And I, I, I can't tell you how much I trusted him after that because he was so matter of fact. There was no, Chad, I think you're great. I think you're awesome. You're, you're going to do great. You'll be here for the whole year. There was none of that. You're gone if you don't execute. It's not... You know, I'm not going to clean this up for you. And I went out, I think I threw seven innings, punched out nine. He had a great game and he was genuinely happy. It was like you responded and it wasn't a challenge. It was just honesty. Honesty is a challenge sometimes. <laughs> and it was a challenge. And I think later on in the year, another one with Jim Leland, I was, I was under the weather. 
I was not, not feeling good. I'd thrown five innings. We were playing Minnesota. Cleveland was maybe up a game or two in the standings. So every game was like cutthroat. Uh, I hadn't given up a run, but I was, I, I just, I didn't feel good. And he asked me, you know, you know, can you go back out there? And I kind of, I stared too long. I said, no, I'm good. I'll go. I, I'm good. But I didn't fight him right away. And I, there's a part of me that he needed to know that information. And he made the decision like that when he got the body language from me. I never once again, ever in my career, didn't respond right away with I'm good. Like I, I put me out there. But that moment I had it, I wanted to win so bad that I was like, dude, I can barely breathe. Like I'm, I'm dizzy. I have too much medicine in my body. I've been sick for two days. I got you five, like bring in the freaking troops. But he wanted to see whether this is where I, I think guys like that are so advanced. He wanted to see whether or not I was a guy that could start for him down the stretch. He, can you pitch when you're not hundred percent? Can you pitch when you're not 90%? And I don't know if that's how he judged that, but there's a part of me that remembers how I felt after. And I was like, you know what? I, I thought like the manager and the assistant GM, the GM, rather than thinking like the player for just a moment. And it, and it wasn't how I needed to think as a competitor in that moment. I needed to, you know, grab the ball and go out there. And because of five innings and gave up like two hits, no runs, you're good today. Yeah. Can you go out there for me? Charlie Manuel was, he'd, he'd just walk by and, you know, he knew which guys he had to stop and say, hey, you're, you're a darn good pitcher. I trust you. You're a good guy. Um, or, I mean, he, I, he popped me on the shoulder and say, hey, Derbs, how you doing? And that was all he needed. That's all I needed as a player. I didn't need to be babysat, but some guys need to be told how good they are. And those managers were such good managers of, you said it, culture. That culture was a product of how they managed the relationships and understood the personalities. Tori is one of those guys. I never had him, but I'll tell you that obviously he was, you know, the Yankees always have so much coverage, but then you hear all the stories about how he managed all those personalities and how he was very honest with his players, but he never, you know, really, you know, came over the top and, and bashed him in the media. I faced that team in 2000 and it was, you know, it was one of the best teams that I've ever, you know, stood in, on a mound and, and faced. And then I, I walked Knobloch on four pitches. I walked Jeter on four pitches. This is to start the game. And then I went 2-0 on Paul O'Neill. And then he swung at the third pitch and hit into a double play. And then I struck Bernie out to get out of the inning. And ended up going seven. I think I gave up four. We lost four to three. I mean, competed really well, if you really think about being 22 years old, being on that stage in old Yankee Stadium. The ghosts were circling, you know, the mound. I was, I was like, I'm never going to throw a strike ever again. Tory caught me in, um, in the tunnel on our way out to the buses. Um, and he's, he kind of smiled at me. He's like, kid, you proved a lot today. And I was like, sir, you know what? Yes, sir. He's like, no, most guys that come in here and crumble like that in the first 10 pitches, it's over. And you got it back on the rails. You handled it really well. We are a championship caliber team. And you're, you're coming in here as a 22 year old kid. You handled the stage really well. Look, at the moment, it was like, thank you, sir, and all that stuff. But that meant so much from him just kind of identifying a moment. I can only imagine if that's what he did for some random Kansas City Royal rookie, what was he saying at the right times to his players and understanding what they needed to hear, why they needed to hear it, and the culture that all those guys 
you know, created. It was one of candid, you know, honesty, accountability, and, you know, Charlie Manuel would grab you and, and you know, hey, Chad, if, 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 if I needed somebody to close a game over this next stretch, you know why you'd be my guy? You know, because uh, you trust me? He's like, well, that and you're not scared to throw the ball over the plate. Most of these guys that have closer stuff can't throw it over the plate. You know, and I need guys that are going to come in there. And if you, just, if you give up a run and it's tied or two runs and it's tied, we got an offense that's going to score runs. What I can't do is have a guy completely fall apart. So, you know, that was, that was his way of communicating with me. But every one of those guys took the time out to communicate, you know, not just with their core, but with every guy that walked in the clubhouse. Wow. Uh, what would you say is the best uh, baseball advice you ever got? Um, so in the Arizona Fall League in 99, Kurt Young was my pitching coach. And – I don't think I gave up a run for my like first 20 innings, 22 innings. I was just, you know, it was one of those stretches of time. And I had finished the double A season with like 38 and a third, you know, with two runs. I mean, I just had, I was on fire. And when you're in those stretches, a lot of times guys will come in and try to attach themselves to, you know, what you're doing. I, I mean, I was almost like offended by Kurt because he just wasn't coaching me. And I finally said it like, Hey, you got anything for me? He goes, what am I going to tell you right now? And I was like, well, I mean, we're in the fall league. You're, you know, obviously on your way to the big leagues. I, you know, just came from a little spot in the big leagues after my double A season. I want to learn. I want to get better. And he's like, well, the only advice I'm going to give you right now is impress yourself. Impress yourself. And I was like, I almost took it wrong at first. Like, is he saying I'm being cocky? Is he saying, I mean, what's going on here? <clears throat> but what he was saying is you're your toughest critic. You know, whether you're doing all the work you know whether you're executing or not, you know whether or not you're being a great teammate. So if you're doing all those things, you're, you should impress yourself in that you have executed every last thing. It's like you know, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday lifts. Most guys, Monday, Tuesday, they lift, they knock it out in the off season. Wednesday, maybe they don't do the things they're supposed to do, a little yoga, a little movement, some stretching, cuff work. Thursday, about half the guys are like, ah, you know, coach, I can't make it in. And on Friday, you get about 20% of the guys finishing their lifts. And it's like, well, I can tell you which guys are going to end up in the big leagues if they stay healthy. It's the guys that are knocking out weeks and weeks of, of finished assignments. And that to me was like the impress yourself mantra really helped me remember how it felt to have executed everything I was supposed to. And the, the, the product of that was some success, but if I failed, I knew I did everything I could to be successful. Mm -hmm. And that was really like what I took away from that. And I think I've used that in my own head because you know, whether all of us know whether or not we've done everything we should that day. And then you know, uh, three or four things on the list that I didn't do. So I'm not impressed. Like I just kind of shrugged my shoulders. I should have done more today. Like that was great advice in a moment where I'm sure he was like, what the heck do you say to this kid? You know, I led the, I led the Arizona fall league in, in ERA that year. And he's like, what are you going to say to him? You know, I, I don't want to screw him up either. By <laughs> giving him advice, it might not be oh, I've, right. I've seen some great coaches who are just very reticent to say anything. Yeah. They're very careful about what they say. Uh, I think bad coaches are just constantly back, 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 back. It's like, 
you have to be very careful with choose your words when to say them you know yeah. and and also like you said earlier uh how you say things to certain people they take it one way this guy takes it another way so you have to know how to talk to each of your players to, to get the message across that you want to get across right definitely there's Knowing those personalities goes back to what Jim Leland, Charlie Manuel, LaRusa, you know, every guy that we've talked about so far. And what they knew is how to handle the individual inside of the team yeah. concept. And I know from working with a ton, we got a couple guys that'll be first rounders that we work with. We get a couple guys that are really high end high school guys and some pro guys that come in, <clears throat> worked, you know, not worked with, but have had consistent relationships with guys like Aaron Nola and, and Kevin Gossman, guys like that. And knowing each one of their personalities is, it's common sense when you really think about it, but you can get bundled into, this is just the way that I do things. And, you know, some of those guys, it's almost like a smile after a really crappy bullpen, instead of wearing them out, like you didn't put in the work, you know why you weren't good today, your focus is elsewhere, all that stuff. You just kind of look at them and smile and be like, that one sucked, huh? You know, they're like, yeah, I just, I just had, a, I had a bad day. I was like, so what? You know, make sure you knock out all the stuff you need to knock out. And next time you're on the bump, I bet it's pretty good. Instead of creating more of a problem out of something that's really not a problem. Well, here's an interesting thing. Um, before my son's no-hitter in AAA, he said yeah. he threw the worst bullpen he's ever thrown. That happens. Locks you in. All right. Yeah, and 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 I yeah, I was thinking, well, why is I was thinking that you have that fight or flight thing. So like I think if you had a bullpen where it went really bad, now you go in the game, you're hyper focused. Oh, I gotta make my pitches. I got you know, like if you're that kind of competitor, right? You're gonna be hyper focused, and that's what made him pitch really well. And if you're at a great bullpen, I think you might have a tendency to say, Oh, I got this and kind of phone it in. That's my thought. What, what do you think about uh, good or bad bullpens before a game, like a warm-up bullpen? In, in the minor leagues, every setting is different. In college, every setting is different. And, you know, sometimes, I'll be honest, like sometimes the plate is offline with the mound in the minor leagues or in some college <laughs> settings, especially on the visiting side. And so it's like, you know, yeah, you were <laughs> off, but, you know, so what? You got your work in. You know, you, you, you threw the 24 to 30 pitches that you might need as a starter pregame as a reliever. That was one of the advantages to being a reliever is like I, I'd throw three or four to get kind of going and then really locate a couple pitches to, to make sure. I, I knew my body was close to ready because I'd warmed up, thrown with, thrown with an outfielder or whatever, and I knew I had seven or eight more when I got into the, into the game. So I wasn't as much of a – I guess I didn't use it as a crutch. It, it, when I was a starter, there was a crutch there. I needed to get everything done. I wanted to execute all my pitches, you know, nickname one more in the minor leagues when I was young, because I just wanted to throw one more pitch, one more pitch, one more pitch. It was like, no, like you're done. Like that's the end of your bullpen. It was crappy. So what, you know, but I just wanted to, like, I wanted to locate that last one. And I think having the mentality of it, it's separating church and state. One is practice and one is game. You know, you're warming up for the game, but you're warming up for the game, you know, and, and I really feel like that, you know, very similar to anything else. It's like your routine and your process can't be the full 30 minutes of warm up or 30 or, or two hours, whatever it is that that is your routine. 
it needs to be in almost like 10 three minute increments. And it's like, this is what I do in step one. This is what I do in step two, step three, step four. That way, when you get thrown off kilter, they're like, oh, the game's starting at 701, not 707 tonight because of this, that, and the other. It's like, oh crap, I'm not going to get my pen in. I'm not going to finish my pen. Instead of that, it's like, well, what do I need to be ready? And, you know, when I have a bad pen, we called it white line syndrome. And it worked both ways. If your light's out, you're going to suck out there. If you're terrible, you're going to be good out there. It's like, you know, Mike Mason, who I talked about earlier, is our pitching coach. Remember him? I mean, I think I threw even backdoor change-ups were landing exactly where I wanted to. We were in Midland, Texas or somewhere. Somewhere where the wind blows like this, not like this. Blows straight <laughs> up and out. And he's like, you need to go ahead and throw a ball like into the river over there. I'm like, why? He goes, just telling you, like, you, you're too good down here. And he said, he was thinking like, do I say something? Do I not say something? Like, you know, you've kind of taken this. This was right before I started to throw really well at the end of the year. And it was just funny. I did. I threw a ball into the oblivion and the next couple of pitches were off. And he was like, all right, you're ready. Let's go. And it was like, wait, no, I'm not ready now. I just panic was setting in. I'm like, no, 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 I have no feel. But it was one of those mental things where it was like, you know, let's, let's, let's get out of here and let's go do it. In fact, I know who I faced that game was uh, a recently drafted Barry Zito. You know, mm -hmm. he was on the other side and our guys were complaining about the high strike getting called on the curveball and all that stuff. It's just, right. it's, it, it all just telling you that little bitty story made me think about everything that kind of played out that day. Um, I think we both gave up like four runs. They were solo homers. And, um, you know, a week later he was in the big leagues, I think. So, um, or Hudson, I think Hudson and Zito were both on that team for a minute. And then they were both gone yeah. and, and much better than everybody else. But yeah, I think there's, everybody's different. Um, I didn't care. I mean, if I didn't throw a strike in the pen as a, as an older player, I didn't, there was, it's going to be fine. You know, curveballs hanging, sliders backing up, the cutters spike, the sinkers straight, the four seams. To you, they were separate things. Didn't, didn't relate at all. It, it was, yeah. you know, it was like doing sprint work before the race. You know, it, it, once that gun goes off, it's a completely different thing. You know, yeah. I, I'll tell you, this is probably good for some guys to hear. Um, Cause you play with guys like Verlander and Kimbrell and all these guys that throw a hundred and you get caught up in the, in the gun a little bit. And no matter what I did in an off season or even in between every inning, if I tried to hump up and throw a ball hard, I couldn't hit 90 miles an hour until the hitter got in the box. And then I'd throw a sinker and it'd be 92, 93 or something. And it was like, oh, thank God it's not gone. Like, but you have that moment where you're like, I just humped up and hit 87. Like my career is definitely over after this game. And it's in it, but some, especially as you go into the later part of your career where without adrenaline, it is hard to go find the extra gear. And then you, you, what happens is you smooth out and compete and everything comes out good. But when you, when you hump up and you're older, you don't move as well. And so I think for younger guys or even guys that are in, you know, whoever's listening to this, understanding that, you know, impressing the gun in, in running guns or off of, off of a, a mound in a, in a controlled setting without a, without a guy with a weapon standing 60 feet from you, you're just not going to be able to, you might optimize. Some guys throw a hundred in, in pull downs, they throw 105 and you're like, how in the heck does that guy do that? Well, I mean, he's geared differently. And, and it doesn't mean that he's going to be more successful or less successful than you on the mound. Um, can he do that over the, over the, again, to the quadrants and pitching and understand 
you know, the entire space. Is he going to throw the right pitches and the right counts? Who knows? I mean, but it's individual to you. You know, if I throw 88 in the bullpen, but I got all my work in, I spun my breaking ball where I wanted to, I was able to keep everything under one, three to the plate. Um, all that, I feel like that is a better, you know, transition to the game than I threw 98 in the pen. I mean, no, the catcher didn't catch it. Um, but, you know, that doesn't transition into the game. It gets you noticed. But be careful about exposure because what are you exposing? Yeah, well, it's like uh, your career, 11 years in the bigs. Uh, Bronson, I think, had 16 or something. Yeah, I was uh, you part, guys... part of 14 for me. That's uh, I had up and yeah. down years when oh. you know, up and up. And, and I think that just proves that if you're a pitcher, that's that's fine. You know, if you're just a thrower throwing 98, well, well, you got to keep throwing 98 and you got to get it in the zone somewhere. And maybe you can get by sometimes, yeah. but these major league batters can square up a bullet. So you really have to have more than just 98. And, and what the show is about is talking about, well, you need velocity, command, movement, sequencing, reading batters, all the things we talked about in the show so far. And I think if you had all those things, you know, you'd be all a famer. So at the end of the show, I have a list of nine things I'm going to show, going to show you on the screen. And I ask everybody to pick your top four. Uh, we all want all of them because we'd say, well, you have all of them. You're going to be the Hall of Fame. Yeah. But if you would please look at this list and tell me what you think are your top four. And uh, they're in no order. It's just uh, a list. Uh, it's character, command, changing speeds, movement, max velocity, sequencing, reading batters, mental toughness, and know who you are. What would be your top four? I think uh, mental toughness, command, movement, character. I think those would be you know, probably I think the mental toughness allows you the ability to find some of the other, you know, sequencing, changing speeds, um, knowing who you are, reading batters. Uh, max velocity is more of a physical um, yeah. physiology more than it is a mentality. But yeah, I think mental toughness would go first and foremost if we're talking about a category where everybody's similarly talented. Yeah, I would I would think mental toughness would trump everything. Yeah. It's going to make think, you go do the work. You know what I mean? It's going to make you understand what what sequencing is, what changing speeds is. What I'm going to need to do in an off season from a movement standpoint to get max velocity. Like it's going to yeah. be discipline. Mental toughness is discipline and I feel like that's the separator. Yeah, it's like mental toughness and character kind of could be combined a little bit. Uh, I think know who you are is another big one because are you're not a Nolan Ryan or you're you are a Chad Durbin. You're like, what kind of pitcher are you? Mm -hmm. I think dictates what kind of work you do, what kind of pitches you try to throw. Uh, I think they're all important, you know. Yeah, I, the the know who you are is is very valuable inside of the the right guy talking you through it. I think when you're young, they're like pitch within yourself. And I feel like when you're young, you need to make the big mistakes. Like, how do yeah. I know I can't throw a 3-2 backdoor slider? 
yeah. oh, well, I've never done it, but if I've walked a guy, well, you got to pitch within yourself. Well, I got to find out what I'm capable of and how am I going to know who I am? So there is a, an equation there to get to where I know who I am. And that, that circles right back to number one again, character. Like, yeah. are you willing to fail and are you willing to post back up after failure? Because, you know, it, it, I think I'm like Ferris Bueller. Uh, I got sent down nine times um, or, or asked, asked to leave an organization in some form or fashion, um, you know, whether it's waivers or whatever, nine times. And I think the, you're frustrated and sad and, and you feel like you disappointed people and, and everything. But if you really, that, it was a three hour drive from Omaha to uh, Kansas City or vice versa, Kansas City to Omaha, two different drives, mind you. When you're driving one way and the other way, there are two different drives. One's happy, one's not so happy. Um, but your ability to be honest with yourself, know who you are, the character to be able to show up like the moment that you get there instead of waiting the 72 hours, um, evaluating why you're going to AAA. Why, why, why did I get let go? Why, did I, why wasn't I good enough to be on that roster? What do I need to do to get better? And, you know, and being honest with yourself, it was, it was not fun, you know, to, uh, to I don't want to look, I, we didn't have my cell phone. I had one, but it was like a Nokia brick. It wasn't like we were exchanging texts or anything. And I didn't want to yeah. answer it. I don't want to talk to my mom. I don't want to talk to my dad. I don't want to, all I want to do is just post back up and get better and not deal with all the BS. It's hard nowadays. Social media, um, in, I mean, immediate access and, and, you know, instant gratification and all those key terms, what you don't get to do is kind of, you have the solitude of process and that, that, that three hour drive and in the drive home and two seasons and all that stuff, I utilized them, you know, to, to kind of have, you know, a monologue with myself, like what, you know, I want to be, I want to be really good. Like, Good, good is the enemy of great kind of, kind of, you know, mantra in my head. And, and that was always like, what do I need to do better? And sometimes it was, you know, sometimes I was wrong in my honest, like evaluation of myself. But again, I didn't know who I was yet. You know, so I guess you're always seeking out the best self that you could possibly be. And mentors are important. You know, surrounding yourself with the right people that are like-minded is enormously yeah, important. Yeah, what I've told my son early on was that uh, there are a lot of people as you move up that want to help you. They they really, really want to help you. And I said a lot of them are really, really wrong. So uh, yeah. you have to develop a skill to politely listen to their advice, but select what you're going to follow. Sure. You don't, you don't want to hurt their feelings. You know, they're trying to help you, but you have to learn that skill about knowing who you are and what advice should you take. Yeah. And like in your self-reflection, those drives, that was your time to figure out, oh, here, this is who I am. What advice or what things do I need to change? There's a lot of information coming. They're telling you to do one thing or another. You have to figure out what's the right thing. And, and you were able to do that for a lot of years, you know? Yeah, I mean, hard, hard to be a 0.0 a war guy on baseball reference. It's hard to do that. <laughs> You know, um, you know, that means that you are a, a, the epitome of average for a decade plus. Yeah, but average major league pitcher. Yes. Now, yes. there's only a, there's all, how many thousand major league pitchers have ever been. So that's still your average of the top 
pitchers ever. Oh, yeah. And you and know. did it did it clean through a steroid ear? I need an asterisk by my by my stats. Oh, that's another good point too. Because like <laughs> I you know like after the games, they started checking the hands and why son would come up, and they and my wife would get mad. Why are they checking his hands? He you know like Sean would never cheat. How dare they? And I said no. You don't understand. It's making it so the other players that did cheat, he's not. Ha- he he was competing against guys that were using stuff. He would oh, never okay. use it. And so I said, that's good for him because now that lets him compete on an even level. No doubt. I mean, that's all I really would ask for. I mean, when the class action suit that's never going to happen comes up, I'm I'm in. I want to get paid. So you should have like what? A, how many wars should you have now? Because if you were zero with guys doing steroids, you're probably what plus five, plus ten, or yeah, something. something. You know, maybe maybe one multi-year deal in in fourteen <laughs> years. It was, I was year to year. Yeah. Well, you still had a great career because most guys never even make it that far. And uh, a guy I really respect, Scott Lovecamp, uh, thinks enormously of you. So, uh, you know, you had well, a great you know, career. The, the last thing, you know, that I'll kind of, you know, say, and this is maybe important uh, for, for anybody that's a part of a team in, in, in any form or fashion, whether it's coaching staff or at work or especially for players on rosters, I just felt like, when I turned the corner from worrying about me and survival and, you know, how I'm going to be this and I'm going to be that. And I turned into a team oriented pulling for every guy that I was competing with and against for spots. When I tried to make Adam Eaton better instead of trying to, you know, hope in my mind that he sucks so I can get the spot. When I turned that corner as an athlete, I feel like my career took off. Up to that point, every time a guy pitched poorly or worse than me, you know, it's a difference between good and bad and better and worse. Better and worse, terrible way to live. You know, I'm better or I'm worse or they're worse than me. But if I'm just doing good and I know when I do bad and I want to avoid that, I feel like that's a really easy path to follow. And that was what I did as a big leaguer was I just tried to make everybody better. And and that stretch of time for me was so simple rather than trying to juggle all the thoughts in my head of survival. And I was just, a, it was a clean path and, you know, it allowed for failure and success to exist pretty cleanly. That's great advice. I had heard that some from other people too, like Bronson Arroyo was saying that. Uh, my son had talked about that as well. Dan Hefner had put it a good way. He was saying that, well, when you're pulling for your teammates and you're complimenting them on their success, and cheering them on, he says, you're imprinting success in your mind because you're thinking success. When you tell them great pitch, all right, you're thinking also in your mind, here's a great pitch. So it's kind of like a, it's a culture thing. And I I see that with with guys that are successful, they're thinking like you are. They're a team guy. They're, they're pulling, you know, everybody's pulling for each other. Definitely. That was the, the culture and all the teams that won. Um, 06 and 7 with the Tigers. Those were winning teams. 8, 9, and 10 with uh, with Philly. Um, I would say 12 with the Braves for sure. All of those were years where everybody's pulling the same direction. And the guys that weren't, they found themselves on the out side of everything pretty quick. Because you just didn't, you weren't, you weren't adding value. And if you're not adding value, you know, then then there's some negative form of that that exists. 
Yeah, that's great advice. Hey, Chad, thanks for coming on. I know we had a little trouble scheduling, and uh, uh, I've been really looking forward to this episode for like two weeks already. Oh, this was fun, man. I, I, I enjoy the heck out of it. And, you know, there's all kinds of other stuff as it pops up. If you want to have me again, let's knock it out again. Thank you for I, having I'd me. love to. I'd love to. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Right. Yep. Don't forget to hit subscribe to get notified when new episodes are released. Pitching Command Show, brought to you by Command Tracker, the smart target that MLB and D1 teams rely upon to measure and train command. Many throw hard, but few command. Visit commandtracker.com.